0: Welcome to the CARES Molecular Minute Podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, one of the largest collaborative research networks between CARES and many academic institutions across the country and healthcare systems and community oncologists. The goal of the Precision Oncology Alliance is to promote precision oncology and biomarker research with the hope that this will advance the way we take care of patients and improve the outcomes of patients with cancer. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Shailan Beg from UT Southwestern Cancer Center and to discuss just a few of the important abstracts and data that were presented at the last virtual American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting 2021. Lots of things have been presented across all disciplines, but I thought I'll have that to beg and talk GI oncology at the last ASCO meeting. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and of course, you need to let me know how we're doing. You could do that by sending me an email to cnabhan at kerasls.com. You could also follow me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan and direct message me there. Without further ado, Dr. Shalon Begg from UT Southwestern on the Keras molecular minute podcast okay well i'm really very happy to welcome dr shellan back to the Keras molecular minute uh, podcast uh, we're going to talk about top important abstracts uh at the recent asco 2021 meeting Shailan, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Uh, for uh, folks who don't know you, please introduce yourself, where you work, what you do. And you know, you're being tasked today by really summarizing an entire meeting in less than 30 minutes. So it's no, it's no difficult task. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me, Chaddy. So um, I'm a GI medical oncologist at UT Southwestern in Dallas. Uh, so I'm an associate professor here and... I have a role in overseeing clinical trial operations at the cancer center as well. And my, my clinical practice is uh, mostly pancreas and hepatobiliary cancers, but I, I see all GI cancers. And, and to comment on, on, on how to summarize all of the GI updates from ASCO, if, if you think about ASCO as, as, as a wedding and you have like the, the centerpiece, which is the, the bride and the groom, The last couple of ASCO meetings, the GI oncologists are just, the GI oncology world is just lucky to get an invitation to the party. So it's been a little slow moving uh, compared to many other fields in, in, in the oncology world. I would say that there's some updates from ASCO 21 that may qualify for GI oncology, maybe being a groomsmen or a bridesmaid, but, but definitely nothing which was up there. But I think there are some really interesting updates that are coming up, uh, which, which are already changing standard of care and, uh, and some really interesting studies that are probably going to impact the care for our patients in the next few years.
0: You know, it's always these thoracic people are get, becoming the brides and the grooms It's like crazy. They're just taking Center Strange. I'm, I'm tired of them. It's about time. They need to just take a little backseat. And those Heme people and the the GU
1: people, like you know, I just have—we're sitting on the sidelines, having all this FOMO. That's why
0: we have the Keras Molecular Minute to give you the front line. So uh, it's up to you if you want to just focus on pancreas uh, and hepatobiliary, or um, you want to do other, also GI tract and so on. So uh, let's get started. What uh, number one? What do you think? So there was a lot of talk
1: around the effect of immune therapy in gastroesophageal cancers. Um, so we, we heard two studies or, or three studies that, that are really changing how we treat gastroesophageal cancers and how we incorporate immune therapy. Um, so if it's a multiple choice question and immune therapy is there with the word gastroesophageal cancer, you can probably check the option that has immune therapy is the way I'm looking at it right now. Um, there were two clinical trials reported for patients with metastatic gastroesophageal disease that showed chemo immune therapy is better than chemo alone. So it's ipinevo chemo, nevo chemo with better um, clinical outcomes. And I think around the same time, we heard the FDA regulations and the FDA approval for immune therapy for frontline gastroesophageal cancer. So when it comes to really impacting the care for our patients, um, these are studies which are already influencing the care that we have. I think, from a clinical perspective, who are the patients who benefit? Because the the benefit, when you look at the entire population, is is modest. Um, so, how can we better select the people who would benefit from immune therapy versus chemo-immune therapy or chemo alone? Is 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 isn't really decided. pdl one testing, the CPS score, or the TPS scores is, is is quite a mess right now uh, for for clinical practitioners. I think we need to carry cheat sheets with us to see what's approved, what's the measurement for for which indication for which drug. For gastroesophageal cancer, that's a non-issue because the FDA approval itself is across the board. But, But really to make judicious clinical decisions in the clinic, it would be nice to keep staying in tune to see what data comes up, which can help us identify who are the true people who benefit from chemoimmune therapy. But in terms of uh, treatment options for our patients um, and then the safety of combining uh, immune therapy with combination chemoregimens that we generally use for gastroesophageal cancers, it's, um, there's a lot of advancement that's been made, and, and, and I can see um, that being a great um, change for standard of care, which um, future trials can build off of.
0: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that, uh, like the TPS and the CPS, are all over the place, and um, it got me thinking that there's, there's, there are other factors beyond the TPS that is probably going to play a role. Because in gastroesophageal, you said the appro, the indication, kind of, it doesn't matter what your score is, almost. So there must be other factors. Are you guys trying to explore what other factors in addition to the TPS that might play a role in determining who would benefit? I mean that, That's the
1: million-dollar question, I guess. Uh, the, the GI oncology world is grappling with that the same way the lung and the kidney melanoma people are grappling with. But to your point, it's more of an issue when the effectiveness is less um, compared to what we're seeing in other diseases. But it's been quite a while. We've been waiting for that predictive biomarker and we're not seeing consistency even in the lung space. Is it 1%, 5%, 10%? Is it the tumor or with the infiltrates or not? We, we, we keep talking about a world where blood tests or tumor tests can, can identify the best predictive biomarker and there have been advances that have been made um, for specific treatments. But when we look at Conventional chemo and conventional checkpoint inhibitor treatments. I, I can't I can't put my finger on one biomarker that I would say is is going to uh, revolutionize how we're doing this. But if you look at pdl one expression and along with TMB and and whole mutations or other predictive biomarkers, I hope that we can come up with a panel um, that will tell us what the best treatment option is. But we're not seeing any clinical signs. Um, I wouldn't say that clinical signs where where we can say, you know, smoker, non-smoker, or eastern versus western hemisphere, or that that type of clinical phenotype, we're just predicting response either. So so I think we're stuck. Uh, we're stuck at least for the next couple of years and possibly future the future clinical trials that are going to be read up in this space are going to be very impactful. Okay. Let's move to number two. So sticking with the gastroesophageal space, I think one of the major um, sort of molecularly targeted um, treatments which, which came up was for FGFR2-amplified gastroesophageal cancers. There was a fight clinical trial uh, for patients with FGFR2-amplified gastroesophageal disease that showed, um, adding, and I'm going to butcher the name, bimar Some Some agent. Bima. Bima was the short, but bimaratuzumab, uh, bimaratuzumab um, with or without full Fox 6 had better overall survival uh, compared to chemo alone. Now, again, not necessarily immune therapy related, but when it does come to targeted treatments, I think that's an option which um, is really going to change how we're treating gastroesophageal disease. Some important lessons to learn there are in terms of identifying um, FGFR amplification, and what is the best predictive biomarker? The study looked at tissue testing, and looked at circulating uh, assays as well, um, but it is the IHC uh, for FGFR2, which was the most predictive of, of response. And we saw a, um, sort of a, a dose effect in terms of how positive somebody was and and the clinical benefit for the very positive, I think is the two plus, uh, which is about a quarter of the patients um, had a much better outcome uh, compared to those with, less expression or negative expression weren't enrolled. Um, It's really refreshing to see a clinical trial with targeted treatments where we have a clear indication of what the biomarker is going to be and to see a correlation with the degree of expression in clinical activity. And again, it's it's a very different paradigm than what we just talked about for, for immune therapy, which sometimes actually makes us doubt our understanding of the mechanism. If our proposed biomarker of interest isn't associated with concurrent clinical uh, clinical benefit, but for here it, it was encouraging. They predict about 25% of gastroesophageal cancer patients will be FGFR2 positive based on their um, detection criteria. The more positive they are, the more likely they are to, uh, to to derive benefit. It's a new class of drugs, and there's a new class of toxicity, which is mostly. Ocular toxicity that occurred in about 50% of patients. Um, it didn't occur till about four months into the treatment. And um, it took a while for it to recover, four or five, six months for those toxicities to recover. So when it comes to understanding these new class of medications, we're also going on a learning curve to understand how to manage the toxicities. So we identify the patients as well as we can, we give them the best appropriate treatment. And of course, manage um, those side effects as we go about. But uh, I feel that the FGFR, the role of FGFR um, alterations in gastroesophageal cancer, has really uh, come to prominence very quickly in the last couple of years due to um, you know outstanding work by by clinical investigators in that space, and, and we're seeing that 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 pie getting sliced really nicely and together with the immune therapy approval and this early indication uh, clinical activity with um, FGFR-targeted treatments, really making the gastroesophageal space a very exciting and rapidly evolving space within GI.
0: Shaila, in both of the abstracts you mentioned, you were talking chemo plus immunotherapy and chemo plus BEMA, the new target agent. Does the type of chemotherapy matter in this? Like, in other words, is it just any chemo that you would use in gastroesophageal cancer usually would get the same effect, or you have to stick to the chemo that was used in the trial?
1: The trials built off of the chemo treatments that are being used with 5-FU-based chemo treatments. So uniformly for, for all of these trials, the frontline chemoimmune therapy trial and um, the baromartizumab all use 5-FU-based treatments. Uh, it does make it easy um, to, to apply in the clinic. There are other triple agent therapies like FLOT uh, that are being developed for um, gastro-gastroesophageal cancers. Um, we're going to wait for some chemo immune therapy combinations in the perioperative space for this group of patients, which I believe the studies are well underway, uh, which may even be read. We may get some early activity um,
0: reports by next year. Great. Let's go to number three. By the yeah. way, before we go to number three, for the FGFR, I'm intrigued by this. Do you feel you're ready to start that? Like, do you can you do IHC right now at your own institution, for example, for FGR, FGFR?
1: Yeah, um, I think for a lot of patients with advanced gastroesophageal um, disease, um, they should be getting tumor molecular profiling on diagnosis, and then this will be part of that analysis. So I I feel that the and the fact that it's built off of the chemo regimens that are already uh, being used, and and the fact that they're, they're tumor sequenced up front, um, that this should be a relatively seamless uh, rollout when the drug reads out and we have uh, yeah. an for the for the indication. All right, shoot, number three. So, sticking with the Targeted treatments, I think, so when we talk about cell-free DNA, so we talk a little bit about circulating biomarkers. When we talk about cell-free DNA, it has a role in molecular characterization of the tumors. So we were talking about that in the context of FGFR just a moment ago. Uh, We're seeing, we have heard a lot about some fairly large registrational uh, database studies that are evaluating biomarkers for minimal residual disease detection. And it's a very hot space, which specifically in the colorectal cancer space may have a, a very important role in us being able to decide who should get adjuvant therapy and for how long. But there was one study which has always been the promise for, uh, for, for circulating DNA, which the lung cancer folks have done pretty well with um, in terms of acquired mutations and acquired resistance for self DNA that the GI space yeah. hadn't caught up with. Um, that was presented at ASCO in uh, 21. Yeah. And I thought that that, that, was, that, that that data is going to be paradigm shifting. They took patients with colorectal cancer who had KRAS wild-type disease and whose cancer had gotten worse on um, anti-EGFR therapy. Um, and then they waited. Uh, and then when they progressed, they obtained serial um, cell-free DNA analysis. About 30 or 40% of patients still had KRAS mutations detected in their blood, and we know that KRAS mutations predict lack of response to anti-EGFR therapy in GI cancers. Those patients were not, were, were not enrolled on the study, but the folks who did not have any detectable RAS alterations in their blood, uh, detectable RAS alterations in their blood, or who lost the RAS alterations, were rechallenged with anti-EGFR therapy. In their further lines of therapy, and they saw that the response rate there was about 30%. It's a small study, a couple dozen patients, um, but in terms of proof of concept of how we can use immune therapy, uh, how we can use circulating biomarkers to make decisions and look at markers of predictors of resistance, and in this case, I guess we could call it a predictor of response. I, I thought that that's really amazing, and and when we've been thinking about the applications and and, and true personalized medicine and what that would mean for our existing cancer patients who have been on on cancer treatments, this is a huge unmet need. How can we use not just the molecular profiling at baseline, but the evolution of the molecular profiling from uh, liquid biopsies and serial liquid biopsies to make better clinical decisions? Um, I would expect that in the next few years, I would be very interested to see if we have such studies for patients with BRCA mutations in pancreas cancer who progress on PARP inhibitors or platinum therapy. For FGFR, um, cholangiocarcinoma or gastric patients who are progressing off of FGFR you know, or, or IDH1-targeted uh, treatments. So together with the rise of targeted treatments for, 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 for GI cancers, our improved understanding of molecular profiling, and this evolution in cell-free DNA or circulating biomarkers, I should say, more broadly, um, we're really seeing a, a shift in the way um, clinical care will be given, and putting the cost of care and the burden that that can place on on patients and and, and the health system on the side. We we are seeing segments of the vision that we all had 10 years ago when, when personalized medicine was, was starting to become sort of a more commonly used phrase. And we've seen it happen in lung cancer for acquired mutations for EGFR inhibitors. And here we're seeing it in a really compelling example for GI cancers.
0: You know, it's interesting you mentioned that, as you know, at Keras at, uh, and we, we are um, getting the uh, liquid biopsy this uh, this year out. And uh, and it's really going to be even, you know, um, the hope is we'll be able to get the uh, RNA and the DNA. So really the ability to detect uh, what sometimes could be missed when you do cell-free DNA, because we'll be able to get the RNA. Uh, RNA as well, so um, so we'll have also some studies uh, ongoing in terms of looking at some of the monitoring studies as well as minimal disease and so forth. So so stay tuned for that, and 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 you know I think that's going to be uh, something that Precision Oncology Alliance member institutions and investigators be able to participate in. So couldn't agree with you more. I think there's a lot of opportunities to take these uh, liquid-based biomarker detection, if you will to the next level. I think we're a couple of years out in terms of direct application clinically, but having these trials ongoing right now, certainly uh, hopefully will make a huge impact to the betterment of our patients. You've got one more for us? I'll, I'll give two shout outs to early clinical trials right. um, that,
1: that, that I think we should uh, stay tuned on, maybe coming attractions for future ASCO GI. First of all, uh, Trastuzumab-Duroxatecan. That, that drug is a beast. It is, um, it seems like it's going to really be a compelling treatment option for our patients with gastric cancer, for, with GI cancers. We heard the gastric data in GI ASCO, and we saw the colorectal data um, this year. Uh, patients with refractory colorectal cancer that express HER2 were treated with this antibody drug conjugate, um, with fairly high response rates, which we don't generally see in uh, patients with such refractory colorectal cancer. And the existing treatments are, are fairly modest in terms of their effectiveness. The segment of patients with uh, colorectal cancer who have HER2 amplification is small, but they exist. We know more about how to enrich our selection based on sightedness and, and, and universal testing and even circulating assays can have a role here as well but but a very compelling um, case for the use of this uh, antibody drug conjugate for HER2-amplified colorectal cancer. I, I think there'll be a barrier in how this drug moves to earlier lines of therapy because uh, one of the side effects that it can cause is, um, is a pneumonitis, which there were some cases in the study that were fatal as well. So I think there needs to be more work in understanding who those people are uh, who are at risk for, for pneumonitis. And as we work on that to move this drug potentially into earlier lines of therapy. Um, so HER2 gastric cancer, again, uh, a segment of, of patients with really interesting disease. And I'll give a shout out to one early clinical trial. It's a phase two clinical trial with Pemetestib, um, HSP90 inhibitor for patients with gastro, gastrointestinal stromal tumors. So GIST tumors are the GI cancer poster child for targeted therapy historically, right? Because 90 plus percent of them have mutations in KIT or PDGFR and and the existing treatments like imatinib um, have really revolutionized how we manage um, those patients. The the need for patients with GIST is for the 10% of people who don't express kit or PDGFR, and for a lot of the patients who eventually develop resistance to, uh, to targeted therapy. All the treatments that we have right now are directly or indirectly uh, kinase inhibitors uh, and they're affecting the same pathway. So when a cancer becomes resistant to, to one of those drugs, there will be some cross resistance. And that's why we see that even though there are drugs approved for refractory just their effectiveness is modest. So the hsp 90 inhibitors have the promise for being a treatment option for patients who either don't express KIT PDGFR, it's about 10% of just patients, or patients who have gotten whose cancer has gotten worse on, on, on the existing treatments. And, um, and it was a small study, it was a randomized phase two study where they met their PFS um, endpoint, nearly doubling um, the PFS. Granted, this is a small study, it's a uh, phase two study, but in terms of look, finding a new class of medications, I think it's uh, it's something to look out for, and I'll be really interested to see how this drug
0: evolves for other indications as well in GI cancers. Look, I have no doubt. In a year or two, Shalon, you're going to be the bride and the groom. I think based on what you just told me, you're no longer leftovers. I'm not worried about you.
1: I'm just in, I'm just happy to have an invitation to the party. <laughs>
0: no. Well, I really appreciate you uh, um just highlighting a few of the interesting abstracts in GI oncology um at this last ASCO meeting. I'm gonna go on the record to propose that I'm if I don't I'm gonna see you definitely in Dallas at some point before this, but ASCO GI it's definitely gonna be live, right? So far that's what it looks like. San Francisco, here we come. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for joining me on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Until next time, Shailen. Thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. I appreciate your support. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Shailen Begg. I hope you appreciated the advances happening in GI oncology as well as other disciplines. You should hopefully subscribe to the show, rate the show, write a brief review, and refer a friend or a colleague to the show. Let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or sending me an email to cnabhan at kerasls.com. Thank you for your support to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Until next time, take care.